Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It is Friday, July 9th. We're halfway through the summer, and you are listening to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. And this week, a little bit of Formula E. Joining you, as always, Mr. Mark Hamilton from Vancouver, British Columbia, and Mr. Mark Daly, also of Vancouver, British Columbia. And we've got some breaking news in our neck of the woods that we were talking a little bit about a little bit earlier with some of our listeners on Spaces. Vancouver will officially be hosting a Formula E race next season downtown on July 2nd on Canada Day weekend in the heart of the summer. For us, this is pretty exciting to have some premier motorsports, open wheel racing in our backyards, pretty exciting. And the last time that we had a high level motorsports event in this city was a champ car race back in 2004. And for a number of logistical reasons, that race was never coming back, but pretty cool that we're going to see Formula E in our backyard. And as I was saying to some listeners earlier tonight, that if I was to buy stock in a racing series right now, I think Formula E is probably the series I would buy stock in it for per for all intents and purposes, F1 has a super high ceiling and there's tons of trajectory, but I feel like Formula E is a good place to buy in low and kind of reap some of those dividends down the road, but pretty exciting. What were your thoughts when you heard Vancouver is getting a Formula E event? Well, it's pretty exciting, like you say. I mean, that this sort of came out, I guess, about a year ago that, that this might become a possibility, so they were exploring it even then, but I'm glad to hear, I'm excited to hear that this is actually going to go ahead, so guess who's going to try and get accredited? We will, and whether or not that happens, <laughs> that remains to be seen, but very cool. Really looking forward to, to seeing uh, top-level motorsport back in Vancouver. Like you say, it's been a long time since the Molson Indy race in the in the city here so it's it's long overdue let's put it that way yeah and the sense i get and it was funny because i had a number of people reach out to me today that aren't i would never have considered them sports fans let alone motorsports fans and they're asking where they could get tickets and how much tickets are going to be and obviously that information is not available yet but i have a sneaking suspicion that not only is this event going to be a smash success we're talking about a city of almost three million people that is yep Pretty significantly underserved with big prestige tentpole events during the summer. We don't have a lot going on. And for those that live here, this is often kind of referred to as the no fun city. Yeah, I was just going to say that. (laughs) For a number of different reasons. I think this is going to be a smash and I have every reason to think it's probably going to be one of the bigger events on the Formula E calendar. So probably a little bit of additional motivation for you and I to become a little bit more familiar with that series over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, absolutely. And how much you want to bet that the parking lot for the event is going to be like jam-packed with Teslas, you know, just to... (laughs) And I think, and I've read this somewhere as well, that proportionately there's more Teslas in Vancouver than any other city on the planet. And when you drive around here, that that seems to be a pretty accurate uh, statement. Yeah, you know, just a little joke, uh, or not really a joke, but a little fun fact or boring fact about myself and my family. But every time we, we go 
out with the kids in the car. We have this little game where we try and count the Teslas. And and one trip, we, one one day that we had, we counted 118, like in a three-hour span. So we came to the conclusion that there's either a hell of a lot of Teslas in the lower mainland, or there's some sort of like Tesla promo team. And they have like about like 40 cars or something that just circle like the Metro Vancouver area day in, day out, just so that uh, you know Teslas are always in your oh, consciousness. Totally. But uh, hey, great to be back. It seems like this has been an insanely quick week. I know that it's we had one last day in between shows because we did the show on Monday night, but it is crazy how quick this week has gone. And I keep thinking that there, there's a race literally around the corner, but this is the one weekend off that we have for the foreseeable future. And I don't want to say I'm at a loss for things to do, but I really kind of got into the groove of that triple header that we had. And um, I'm not sure. I'll find some way to preoccupy myself this weekend, but I was kind of actually really looking forward to going to Silverstone this week. Yeah, me too. One of the things that came up uh, when we were on our Spaces chat a little bit earlier, and this was one of our great listeners, Meg, but she made this great point. As exciting as that triple header was that we just went through, the calendar from this point forward is just bananas. Like we're going to see some amazing races at some amazing tracks. So just to kind of reinforce what that looks like, we're going into Silverstone, which is obviously a classic as a track that's been dominated by Mercedes. And you and I have been talking for weeks now about how important this moment is for Mercedes. If they want to turn around the season and take a legitimate shot at the the constructors and the driver's titles, we go to Hungary, which is always a great race. We go to Spa, which is one of the best races on the circuit. Then Zandvoort and I don't know about you, my friend, but I am bubbling over with excitement for that. And based on some of the feedback from our listeners, so are they. And then we're off to Imola, which is obviously one of the best events. But are you excited about Zandvoort? And maybe it's too early because we've got four races to go, but is it too <laughs> early to get excited about Zandvoort? Well, somebody that comes from a Dutch family, yes, I'm absolutely looking forward to Zandvoort in a, in a couple of, well, I guess it's more than a couple of weeks. And it's going to be the first Dutch Grand Prix since, what, 1984? So, I mean, it has right. been a long, long time since there was a race there i'm totally looking forward to it i mean it was crazy last weekend with all the 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 max verstappen fans at the red bull ring i mean it's going to be wall-to-wall orange max verstappen fans there and i'm sure there's going to be a sprinkling of fans for the other drivers but it's almost going to be max supporters from one end of the track to there it's going to be like watching the dutch uh football team soccer team play like a a euro match or the world cup or a qualifier or something like that it's going to be that sort of atmosphere and it's it's gonna it's gonna be fun and in the context of motorsports the only kind of relative comp i can draw is is maybe Valentino Rossi racing in Italy in like 08, 09 during the peak of his championship run and just the sea of yellow. This is going to be, I think, unlike anything we've seen before, especially if they can get something close to a capacity crowd in there because I think the atmosphere, I think the flares, the smoke, the orange, the banners is going to be unlike anything we've seen Mm -hmm. before. And apologies, but somebody had made a, a comment in the Spaces session earlier about, can you imagine the sensation if there is... Uh, a fantastic max overtake on Lewis at that track in the dying moments of the race, the, the explosive, the explosive wave of emotion would be maybe unlike anything we've seen before. So, and what a great year for Zandvoort to host their first event. And I know it was supposed to be last year, but for them to be hosting this year, when max is leading the championship, it's going to be a very, very, very special moment. And hopefully it becomes a, a track that is, well-renowned on the calendar. And, you know, a couple of people had mentioned earlier as well, the fact that the Zambor that we're going to see is unlike the one that we've seen in the past. And we're going to see some bank corners. It should be, it should make for a fabulous weekend. 
Yeah, really looking forward to it. Uh, Michelle G in the live chat uh, said, do you think if England wins the Europe, uh, European Cup this weekend that the players will sh- show up at Silverstone, especially with the three British drivers? And I, I think absolutely. If they win this weekend, and uh, for those of the, you know, just uh, another bit of personal news there, information that probably nobody wants to know. So half English, half Dutch. So usually when it comes to international soccer, both England and Holland always let me down. So th- this weekend, I'm at least hoping that England will pull it off. And, uh, and for sure, I think that if they win the European Championships uh, this weekend, that it will be uh, a party atmosphere. I think there'll be a party atmosphere at Silverstone anyways, but I, th- I, would, I would be surprised if they didn't show up. Let's put it that way. I shared this story a little bit earlier, but in 2018, when I was at Silverstone for qualifying, uh, Lewis took pole and the, the atmosphere, the energy was amazing. You could feel the ground shake. And yeah. they, actually, they actually played because that was the year that England had a fairly fairly decent run at the World Cup in Russia. Mm-hmm. They actually played the race on all the giant video screens around the track after qualifying, and everybody stayed. So you had 140,000 people at the track watching the the England game, which I thought was pretty cool. That's cool. I, That's I really didn't cool. Stay, but uh, I still kind of won because it was the first time I've ever been to a motorsports event and been able to get out of the parking lot in less than like five hours. <laughs> so that was a win for me, but. Yeah, I, I would think so. And I think that's a great question. And I would suspect that we'll see them in one of the suites that looks overlooks the podium or overlooks yeah. the starting grid. But 100%, I think that would be just a, a great, great moment and great celebration of British sport. You know, it was funny. I was talking with a couple of friends today in this group chat that we have, and uh, the the discussion turned to if England win on Saturday, will manager Gareth uh, Southgate and Harry Kane, the captain of the English uh, soccer team, will they get knighthoods? And I said, well, Lewis got a a knighthood this past year, but of course, he didn't win the European Championship. He only had to win seven world championships in Formula One and basically rewrite the sport. So... If they're going by those same standards, then no. <laughs> but maybe it's a little bit different for for Lewis Hamilton. At least he's got the straightaway at Silverstone uh, named after sure, him. But uh, sure. yeah, cool. Well, that's uh, a little bit of a longer intro than usual. But uh, let's get into some of the latest news. And starting with the McLaren CEO, Zach Brown, which is a guy that I have a lot of time for when, when Zach has something to say. I always sit up and listen because he's not usually one of these people that just sort of spouts off in the media just because he wants to be in the media. When when he has something to say, he's usually got a very good point. And he said that he believes that Formula One is setting a very bad precedent with over-regulating on-track passes. And I totally agree. We talked about this ad nauseum on Monday night in the post-race show. And I think that when a guy like Zach Brown, who I consider a bit of an outsider to Formula One, I mean, he's got a long, long resume being involved in motorsports, but being an American, I think he's he approaches the sport a little bit different than, say, the traditional European, uh, you know, figureheads or, you know, power brokers in the sport. Anyway, he says, Zach had to say, uh, quote, the alternative uh, now is that you set the president for all you have to do is get up alongside someone and they've got to pull over for you. And I think that will become very difficult to go racing that way. End quote, 100%. So, uh, I mean, what, what else is there really to add after you read that, uh, that quote from Zach Brown? I think he's absolutely nailed it. Yeah, I completely agree. I do also like your assessment and I never really thought of it like that. 
because in a sense, and I guess there's Otmar too, who grew up principally in, I think, Michigan and in around yeah, Detroit. But that's Zach, right. in a sense, is very much an outsider. And if you look at the typical team principal, they typically come from within the sport. Either they were through a develop, driver development program, or they were an engineer, or they were an aerodynamist, or they worked at some level of a team. Zach kind of came in at that ultra high level. And I know some of the feedback early on was, especially from British fans, they were very, very, very skeptical of him. But mm-hmm. I think I like that his, I like his optimism. I, I like his positive energy. I, I like the, I like obviously the work that he's done with the drivers in that team. And, and obviously Carlos and Lando, that that was a great pairing. And then bring in Ricardo. Uh, we've still had some runway with Ricardo. So we'll see how the season plays out. But I, I like his energy and I also like his perspective. And I think that this is, this is a very honest assessment of what happened. And I think you have to look at it in isolation because one, obviously one of his drivers was impacted and possibly cost him second place on the podium. But at the same time, if you look at it purely in isolation and you separate that from the moment, you got to agree with what he's saying, which is F1 risks being in a position where passing becomes artificial and the lead driver is reluctant to defend the racing line in any meaningful way for fear Mm -hmm. of a penalty. And Again, I don't know that it needs to be NASCAR level of contact where contact's almost borderline encouraged or is just integrated into the fabric <laughs> of the sport. But yeah. it, there's, there's got to be some happy medium between the two of them. And right now, it's it's not where it needs to be. And you cannot be penalizing drivers and you cannot be letting the driver behind you walk past you just because they've got a little bit of pace and a little bit of momentum. Like That lead driver needs to have the opportunity and the right to safely defend the, the racing line. So yeah, I completely agree with Zach on this one. Well, he does go on to say, like specifically talking about the incident that Lando got uh, penalized for, he had to say, quote, I thought it was nonsense. I think I, ever since I've been in motor racing, which is about 35 years now, when you go go to make a pass on the outside, certainly on an opening lap, I think it's passer beware. For 50 years, it's been great wheel to wheel racing, but you put yourself at risk of potentially running out of room on the exit. I thought it was great, firm, hard racing. And I think sometimes we need to let the drivers race. We need to make sure that they're doing stuff or safe stuff and they are driving within the limits, end quote. Again, no, nothing further to add. And and I totally agree. I thought it was really hard uh, racing. I think it was safe and it was um, it was BS. Let's put it that way. But uh, moving along, the one person that nobody really wants to hear from when it comes to this sort of thing has decided to make himself uh, be heard from again, uh, yet again. And that is Formula One race director Michael Massey. And nothing you know, against him uh, personally, but I kind of, kind of equate him to a little bit along the the same lines that I've done over the past uh, eighteen months with all these uh, you know public health officers and the pandemic. That these are kind of people. If I'm hearing them and I know them and I recognize them by face and by voice and by name, then they're in the news too much. Obviously, the pandemic is a totally different, horrible situation, but. I think that the that the fact that we're hearing so often from the race director is just a little bit uh, too long because he was out again in the media this week uh, just uh, defending the the points penalty point system and you know he said that there's no reason to revisit it or change it or anything like that and I was just like why do you need to keep popping up nobody's really asking for this and you know the the criticisms. Well, I mean, obviously there were the the, the one criticism was that uh, Lando felt that drivers shouldn't be awarded penalty points if it was for an unsafe, uh, if the situation that they penalized were uh, or wasn't an overly unsafe situation. I mean, he was 
found to push a, a car off the track and that sounds like obviously like really horrible but it wasn't like in a really really egregious dangerous uh, situation i mean it was side to side you know sergio went off onto the gravel and he came back on tree lost a, bu- a bunch of uh, positions but it was a 50 50 one and <laughs> you know it's just please don't pop up in the news every two or three days just because you feel like something needs to be said because we don't need it we don't want it and just you know, maybe it's time to keep some of these things to yourself. Yeah, we talked about this so much the last couple of weeks. Massey has no business being in the public view and the public eye. And part of this is, on the one hand, you have the British sporting media, which is relative to the rest of the global sports media, a little bit over-indexed. We know seven of the teams are based in that country. Overwhelmingly, the, the sponsorship dollars come from that country. So the British sporting media has a little bit more influence. And typically, they're a, a little bit guarded of their drivers. And on the one hand, I have to be a little bit cautious here because a lot of the media is stirring this up and printing a lot of these quotes because there's concern about the fact that Lando's sitting on 10 points and is close mm-hmm. to a one-race ban but the other thought too and i saw this con this comment on reddit earlier today and i'd never thought of it like this but the current penalty point system is about a decade old i think nine years old but if you look at 2014 versus 2021 we're in a position where the drivers are racing almost 25 percent more races over any 12 month period than they were when the point system was instituted so there's actually a 25 percent greater opportunity to incur penalty points so it, it just that in isolation is probably worth something worth visiting as well that look you built this penalty point system on the pretense of a 17 18 19 race calendar but now we're in a position where we're having 23 race calendars and because of the covid situation we're going to see potentially 26 races in the course of a 12 month span that this doesn't work one the the application of the points the the quantity of the points before a one race ban occurs and let's just be honest if if there's an instant this year where Lando incurs two additional penalty points and he misses a race and those points are in question in any kind of way whatsoever, this will be hugely problematic and damaging for the sport because to then go and try to explain to all your new followers and all those British fans that, hey, this is a part of the sport and it's a it's a justified ban, like that's going to be a really, really, really challenging sell, especially when you're trying to nurture these fans and so much of what we've seen this year is a bit of a turnoff in terms of consistency from the stewards and consistency from Massey and consistency when it comes to application of track limits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This just kind of ties into all of that, but I I've heard enough from Massey for, uh, for this summer to be totally honest. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Well, I mean, another twist to that one is, could you imagine that it comes down to costing them points of the constructors uh, championship and say, oh. we go into the last couple of races and they lose out to that, uh, that spot in the cha- or the constructors to Ferrari or whoever. I mean, we're talking about millions of dollars in prize money. I awesome mean, that point. is, yeah. Yeah, that that it, it's a major, major thing. Awesome point. But I, I will agree, but I also disagree on uh, on another hand that uh, on another side that uh, we've heard enough from Massey over the summer, of which I totally agree with. But the one thing he did come out and say this week is You've got uh, that more Massey stories, more Massey news. I don't have any Bottas stories this week, so oh, I, I doubled down Bottas on them. <laughs> well ran dry. Yeah, it did. Uh, sadly enough, but I thought I doubled down on the Michael Massey stories. Anyways, the one thing that I thought that was applicable 
Noble this week was the fact that he did say that they are ready to amend the sprint race rules if necessary, which I think is a fair enough comment because this is coming up uh, very soon. And this is uh, something that uh, is still a work in progress. We haven't even trialed it yet. So we're, we're going to find out pretty quick how this is going to play out in reality. And sure, if it needs to be changed up on the fly, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. But the fact, uh, kind of going back to bring this one full circle is, yeah, we just don't need to hear you in the news every two or three days. You know, we're okay if it's it spaces out to weeks or even months or perhaps maybe even once a season. I'm perfectly okay with that. I completely agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit torn on this one. So I appreciate what they're trying to say here, which is they want to be flexible and they want to be adaptable. So if we go into Silverstone and sprint yeah. qualifying doesn't work for whatever reason, Basically what he's predicting here, it's not predicting, but basically what he's cautioning is like, look, if it's not what we want it to be, if it doesn't work, we're willing to be flexible enough that we can make changes on the fly. So by the time we get to the second sprint qualifying weekend, we can adapt. I I appreciate that on the one hand, but one of the things that I, I don't necessarily love about sports is when rules are being adjusted and tweaked and changed on the fly during a season in season within a championship. And I get this year's a little bit unique because it's kind of the back half of the, the COVID pandemic. And a lot of what we're doing is unique. And a lot of what we're trying to do is kind of, kind of buy it, get more fans to buy in and create some more excitement and draw more eyeballs to the TVs. I don't love this, but at the same time, he is right in the sense that we don't know what we don't know because we've never done this before. And if it doesn't work, it would be equally as bad to stick with the formula going into another weekend and then yeah. kind of stir up all that negativity. So on the one hand, I'm like, I don't like constant change in season. But on the other hand, he's right. Like if this doesn't work, I don't want to see it again. And I would prefer that they make those changes. Yeah, that's why my one big criticism of that botched uh, qualifying format oh. that they brought in four or five years ago or whatever it was, and they kept it for, what, two or three races, and then there was no attempt to really modify it. It was just like, well, this isn't working. Let's just go back to the exactly. old format, yeah, which, exactly. which I, I'm perfectly happy with. I've never really had an issue with the Q1, Q2, and the the top 10 knockout format in, in Q3, but that was just a, a complete disaster. The fact that they had this great sort of plans for it and just never really panned out in reality. And then they just quickly ditched it in, in short order. Anyways, Mark, let's take a really quick uh, break. When we come back, there are th- things to talk about that are not related to Michael Massey and Valtteri Bottas, but sort of, kind of, but not really. Anyways, time for a quick re- break, guys. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, as promised, we are not going to talk about specifically Valtteri Bottas or Michael Massey. Anyways, what I did want, it is a Mercedes story. Let's put it that way. Total Wolf team principal at a Mercedes says what he believes is the against all odds title fight against a Red Bull this year is actually going to make Mercedes stronger. Now, that sounds like a bit of an ominous statement if you're anybody else that is uh, not uh, Mercedes. And obviously, things have not gone their way this year. This is obviously not the position that we're used to seeing Mercedes in the World Championship, both in the constructors and the drivers chasing and seemingly not having any answers for their competitors, for their rivals. I mean, we've seen it at times over the years where they've maybe had an off weekend where when they were off, they were really, really off. I mean, Monaco in, what was it, 2017 was a prime example. And that was just a disastrous weekend for them. And then they go away for two weeks, fast forward, come back to Montreal. And it's back to, it was back to business as usual. And they were their usual dominant selves. And it basically teed up the rest of the season. Let's, uh, let's put it that way. So I would I would not be surprised that maybe if this is the one that gets away from them. And of course, there's a lot of racing between now and Abu Dhabi at the beginning of December. So this world championship, although it looks really good for Red Bull and Max Verstappen at the moment, doesn't mean it's necessarily over. And I've always said that whenever Mercedes is dealt some adversity and they've had some problems that they've they've had to deal with, they always come back stronger. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree in a sense that this should be from a, a leadership perspective and in terms of the board at Mercedes, 2021 should be something of an inflection point for this team. And and by that, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a second that they've begun cutting corners, that the culture, that the approach, that the strategy, that the work effort at either Brackley or Bricksworth have, has changed at all in the last couple of years. But I think sometimes a shock to the system is good for you to evaluate your philosophy and the way that you do things. I'd said for some time that when the principal arrow regulations were pushed off to 2022, that this was going to be a really important year for Lewis, because my perspective was that 2022 is going to introduce enormous unpredictability to Formula One. And it's what the sport needs. Don't get me wrong. It's very, very clearly what F1 needs at this point. But I think in terms of positioning Lewis to take a legitimate shot at title number eight and taking 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 a run at the title of greatest of all time when it comes to Formula One drivers, that this is the year he needed to make that happen. Because I don't doubt that they're going to be successful next year. I, I think because of their financial resources and because of their driver academy, they're obviously going to be able to equip their cars with great drivers. We already know that Lewis will be back next year. And I'm confident that whoever they put in the second car is going to be very good. But my perspective was always that if Lewis is going to chase number eight, it has to happen this year because I I don't believe that there's any guarantees next year. I think there's a ton of uncertainty around 
how the drivers and the teams are going to adapt to 18-inch wheels. I think the standardization of components and the standardized arrow is going to do exactly what it's intended to do, which is level the playing field. And I think teams like McLaren will potentially be elevated. Obviously, it's going to be a great opportunity to reset at Aston Martin because they got the aero philosophy wrong this year, as did Mercedes to a similar extent. I still think Haas is going to be absolutely garbage because I think that (laughs) they don't have the right people capital and I think they've got the wrong leadership. But I also don't... I wouldn't take for granted that Mercedes is going to be fighting for a title next year. And if they are, it's probably going to be with three teams or maybe four teams. It won't be the two team battle that we see this year. So it's going to make them stronger. It's a great inflection opportunity. It's a, it's a chance for them to reflect on what they do and how they do things and how they manage their factories. I just don't think it's going to translate into a guaranteed title run next year, because I think the parody is going to be exactly what we want it to be next year. And I would expect three, four, five teams to be chasing a championship. And if there aren't, oh, that's a big problem for Formula One, because if they do all this work effort to reinvent the car and the aero and part standardization, and we still don't have that level of parity, I think that's a problem because I think what we're seeing in, in Indy this year is what F1 desperately Wants. And it's always going to be a little bit more challenging because F1 hopefully never gets to the same level of spec car that India's. But again, getting to a more consolidated design standard and design philosophy and aero philosophy is something that should help that. But I think my point is that this year is a big miss for Lewis because I think this was a legit shot for him to chase title number eight. And I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think next year is a guaranteed shot. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, there is no real way to make any predictions about uh, 2022 because there are so many unknowns. So we, we just don't know how these uh, teams are going to uh, interpret the new Completely regulations. Agree. And agree. the one thing is that over the past uh, number of years that there, there's been a lot of similarity between the way that uh, the, the cars look from team to team to team within the current uh, regulations. We have no idea how these teams are going to look or these cars are going to look uh, You know, that next year, just the, the way that they design and build them within the parameters. And of course, like with the, the, the switch to different wheels and the, the whole aero package and everything, there's just uh, too many questions. And uh, again, as, as somebody might uh, just uh, come out of uh, out of nowhere and surprise everyone with some real, you know, uh, avant-garde design concepts that they're they're able to, to implement. So th- nothing's taken for granted. I mean, even through the first uh, couple of races, I think that it'll really be tough to make the call who got it right, who got it wrong. I think that uh, we're, we're going to have to sit back and evaluate maybe by the summer break and see, okay, well, so-and-so is leading the the constructors, so-and-so is uh, leading the, the the driver's championship. How did we get here? What's it looking for uh, looking like for the second half of the season? And of course, by the time we get to the end of the 2022 season, we should obviously have a pretty good idea of who the winners and losers were, not just in the championship, but just basically when it came down to designing and building these new cars. Absolutely. And don't forget that one of the reasons that Mercedes has been so dominant the last six or seven years is they simply got the formula right going into 2014. So it was a fundamental Mm -hmm. change, aero, car, uh, track, everything about the car was different, but they nailed the design and they nailed the power unit. And that's, that's a pretty clear indication that maybe there's a team that unexpectedly is going to be in the same position. And again, we're going to see the same power units translate over, although of course they're kind of frozen from a performance perspective, but that's not to say that there isn't a team that's going to do something fundamentally different than the rest of the field within uh within the the i would say the 
tolerances of the new aero regulations and that we have a surprise team next year. And maybe that's McLaren, maybe that's Ferrari. But I just, my point is that there's no guarantee that this team is going to be competing for a championship. You know, the one thing that I always love every new year after you get, uh, you know, past uh, Christmas, New Year holidays is towards the end of January, beginning of February, when you have all the car launches. And this year is going to have added significance, what with, you know, all the car releases. And I don't care if it's a Haas or whoever, it's going to be that first team that that makes their, uh, their, their car reveal is going to have a lot of eyes on them, maybe even more so than previous years. So it kind of makes you wonder just from... Uh, a publicity point of view, if that maybe changes up the way that the teams tend to release their cars, because it, it seems at least in recent history and recent memory, it's always kind of been your lower down the grid kind of teams that tend to have their car launches sooner rather than later. And then the bigger contenders usually kind of keep it a little bit longer. They try and I wouldn't say put it off, but they kind of wait until everybody else is done and try to make a splash towards the end of a release season or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And they don't, always want to be the first team out because they don't want other teams to get that opportunity to take a peek at what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. This year was a little bit disappointing because the cars that they were introducing for 2021 were basically the 2020 cars. In some cases, literally physically the 2020 car because they really did design a unique chassis for 2021 just to, yeah. and, and this is interesting as well and we'll probably get to this a little bit later because we had a great question from somebody that wanted a little bit of perspective on our favorite season since 2000 uh 2007 but if you look if you look at the first seven grand prix of 2012 this is mm-hmm. how exciting f1 can be so here we go australia winner jensen button Malaysia, Fernando Alonso, China, Nico Rosberg, Bahrain, Sebastian Vettel, Spain, Pastor Maldonado, Monaco, Mark Weber, Canada, Lewis Hamilton. In seven races, there were seven different winners. In Formula One, it is possible. And hopefully that's what we see next year. I would love nothing more to, than see, to see seven different race winners in a single season. I thought you were going to say you would uh, love nothing more to see Pastor Maldonado win another race in Formula One. That was, I guess, or, was that the last the last race win for for Williams? Yep, hundred percent, it was. And also, on a fun note for the newer fans, uh, Pastor Maldonado also had the unfortunate nickname of Crashtor pa- uh, Maldonado. Long before we had Nikita Mazaspin, we had Crashtor Maldonado. Anyways, uh, that's uh, a little bit uh, neither here nor there. But yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that is uh, fantastic. Uh, that that's Formula One at its uh, at its best. And again, you you make a really really good point. I mean, when we came into the turbo hybrid era beginning in uh, 2014, Mercedes had invested so much time and effort because let's remember that prior to the the turbo hybrid era they were just an okay team they weren't really anything really exciting but they really spent a lot of time and a vast amount of money to really develop the power unit and the car and everything like that and it really is basically a tale of two different teams in the last 15 years or whatever it is since they re-entered the sport it, it's really a very very stark uh, contrast you're nodding in agreement. I love it. So before we go into our next uh, break here, I just want to just double back for a second. You you just talked about uh, this is the year if Lewis is going to win title number eight, this would have to be the year just based on all the unknowns going into 22. But Lewis said this week that this title fight scrap 
Donnybrook, whatever you want to call it, that he's having with uh, Max Verstappen is uh, reinvigorating his love for Formula One. I thought that was an interesting comment that Lewis made because I don't and I, I don't think this has ever been suggested uh, anywhere else that he's kind of you know mentally checked out or he's kind of been going through the motions and just kind of doing the minimum to win races and championships. I think that's really far from reality. But I think this was a, a really, really interesting comment because I, I think it's it's really a cool situation to see the OG in Lewis Hamilton that has a, you know, a list of achievements and records and Formula One world championships literally a mile long. And then the face of the new generation in Max Verstappen and the, I would say the heir apparent because whoever comes close to equaling or breaking Lewis's records is obviously a long, long way from, from doing so. But I think this is kind of cool. And I think this is a, an interesting perspective or comment from Lewis, because I wonder how much this first half of the season, the fight that he's uh, been having with Max has really was, was part of the motivation for him to sign this new year, uh, sorry, two new year, sorry, New two-year deal. Got it eventually with the Mercedes. What do you think? I think $110 million US was probably the principal motivation for him to return to F1 for two more years. <laughs> Good point. Let's be let's be totally honest, but I, I think he's still young enough that he feels he can probably compete for a championship, and I think with the right car, he absolutely can. I, yep. I don't know what else you're going to say, right? Like, I think Hamilton is possibly one of the most articulate drivers on the grid and love him or hate him. He's extremely well-spoken. He can be a little bit emotional and a little bit sappy from now, from, from then and now. But I think ultimately he's incredibly articulate. He's, he's well-versed with the media. He's well-read. And I think he can get across a statement that plays well in the press. And I think this is one of those that this battle is reinvigorating his love for for Formula One, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because I know we want to talk a little bit about the the upgrades that that Mercedes is going to bring in a couple of moments here. But I just want to caution that this has, it hasn't been a great start for Hamilton. I, I know he took a couple of race wins at the beginning of the season. Uh, obviously, that mistake in Baku is one of those things that he's probably going to look back on quite uh, painfully for the rest of the season, especially if the championship tightens up. And I expect that it probably will because I don't think that Red Bull is going to enjoy the reliability they've enjoyed throughout the course of the season so far. But yeah, hopefully hopefully it has reinvigorated Hamilton in the same way that maybe it's been a great inflection moment for Mercedes. Maybe it's great for for Lewis, but ultimately he just needs a great car and he needs to continue to be consistent. But yeah, I don't really have a ton else to add on this one. I thought it was a good comment, played well for the media. We'll see how the uh, we'll see how the rest of the championship uh, plays out. But I can't I can't imagine, and I kind of want your perspective on this too. I can't imagine that him losing a championship would make him hungry to come back. And maybe it does. I, I think that that's probably the case for a lot of athletes. But if you have seven titles and you're in your mid to late thirties. Does it make you hungry to come back knowing the new regulations are coming back? Like, what's your perspective on that? If you were in his seat, 35 years old, you have seven titles, you lose a championship, potentially you go into a new era of F1. Are you reinvigorated? What's your take? 
Well, number one, I, I don't think that Lewis is the kind of guy that just because things don't go his way that he's going to just pack up his toys and go home kind of thing. I think that uh, part of the reason that he signs uh, that uh, new two-year deal with uh, Mercedes, I think, is a good indication of how much he's bought into that program and whatever Total Wolf sold him to really convince him to come back. And I mean, obviously, $110 million is, is a big uh, reason to come back for a couple more years. But at, at this point, uh, I, I mean, $110 million is a hell of a lot of money but at this point he's he's not doing it for money i mean he's made more money than he could ever spend in his lifetime anyway so i mean the the, the big contract the money is just that's his fair market value i, I think I and what, what he's totally you know yeah. so i i think that it's it's obviously important but i don't think it's 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 the whole reason i think it's the the opportunity to fight for championships uh, with max i think it's the opportunity to try out these uh new cars in a new era and i, I think it's a little bit risky in in a way just uh, regarding his legacy because i mean here we come off uh, multiple uh, uh world champions Championships back to back to back. I mean, you know, the last time he didn't win was 2016 when he barely lost the championship to Nico Rosberg by what, five points, four points, or whatever it was by the end of the season. And I mean, certainly if if somebody comes out uh, next year or maybe a, you know, a couple of the teams have better cars than uh, Mercedes and they find themselves second or third or, you know, heaven forbid, fourth in the championship for the next couple of seasons. And and Lewis isn't challenging for for, for race wins and, and ultimately for world championships, then I guess that that could tarnish his legacy to a certain extent. But it, it certainly is a very, very interesting situation. I just don't think that he's ready to walk away. I think that he's putting a lot of faith in Mercedes saying, okay, well, I'm coming back for two years because I think I can get the job done. I can still win races for you. Uh, I can win championships for myself and help uh, contribute to, towards winning constructors championships uh, for the team. So guys, it's up to you to deliver the car now. So, I mean, it kind of works both ways, right? Yeah. So if I'm going to unpack what you said, what you're saying is that the Lewis Hamilton situation is very much like the Tom Brady situation that Tom won yes. six yeah. Super Bowls with the New England. England Patriots. And then he had an opportunity to go to Tampa Bay and reinforce how critical he was to all the titles that happened in New England, less so Bill Belichick. And in this scenario, we're saying Lewis won six titles with a really dominant Mercedes team. And now he has an opportunity to win more titles in a new era where there's more parity to reinforce once again, that it was less the car during that initial turbo hybrid era and more him. And he'll do that by winning a championship in the new car. Yes. That, that, so that, think, that's exactly yeah. what you were saying. Hey, one other thought too, I just had a couple of minutes ago and I hadn't kind of surfaced this before. I wonder how much of that Hamilton contract, the value and the fact that it was signed now is to mm-hmm. avoid a pending driver salary cap. Maybe that's in the pipeline. Maybe the teams know it. And maybe yep. Mercedes and Lewis were like, let's just get this done now. So you're on the books. You're going to be grandfathered in. and We don't have to worry about that. And if you do decide to stick around a little bit longer, we're going to load this deal up to compensate for what we won't be able to pay you from 2024 onwards, for instance. But it was just a thought, yeah, just a random thought. That, that's that's a great point. I mean, that that driver's salary cap thing has been out there for 
quite some time now. I mean, there, there's a lot of smoke there. There's been no indication one way or another that this is uh, something that uh, Formula One is going to pursue. But just given the fact of this, uh, you know, the, the 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 cost cap that's been put in place and all the emergency measures that they put in last year and the new Concord agreements that uh, that got uh, signed last summer, that the writing is on the wall. So, I mean, like you say, let you know, for, it makes a lot of sense for Mercedes and Lewis to sit down, get the deal done. And if, uh, if Formula One comes along and say, yeah, guys, we're we're going to do that uh, that cost or sorry driver salary cap then hey we don't have anything to worry about you're on the books for two more years let's just go out and race and we don't have to worry about this and and making the dollars and cents work uh, so let's just go out there and and race anyhow mark let's take a, another break here quickly we'll come back in a moment and we will talk about the silverstone upgrades for mercedes and how lewis feels that it might not be good enough to close the gap to red bull as much as they might like anyways we'll talk about that and more in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back Okay, guys, welcome back to the show. Welcome to everybody that's uh, following along in the live stream on uh, YouTube. Uh, it's Mark and Mark. It's Thursday night. It's really weird, you know, just uh, thinking that uh, we came off a long holiday weekend last week and there's still one more day to go to a normal weekend. And, you know, I you know, just truth be known, I could get used to these three day weekends all the time. So at least here in uh, BC, we got one coming up in just, uh, what, about a month now? when we have a BC day long weekend. So at least we don't have that much uh, longer to wait. And then Labor Day, but Labor Day always makes me feel a little bit kind of sad That's because it's sad always like holiday. the, it is because it's like the unofficial end to summer, even though the, the, the seasons don't officially change until like, well, what the 22nd of September is just like Labor Day passes. Everybody goes back to work. Everybody goes back to school and no more white pants after Labor Day. That's a fashion thing, apparently. And it just kind of feels like you're in summer garbage time. It feels like you should be like kneeling down the ball and just running out the clock. And it's just like, I'm not ready to put away the barbecue. I'm not ready to put away the shorts and the flip flops and everything's like that. But let's talk about happier things. Well, maybe happier things if you're a fan of Red Bull, maybe not so much if you're a fan of uh, Mercedes, but uh, Lewis believes that the upgrades that are coming, and these are uh, upgrades to the W12 that have been in the pipeline for some time, he feels that they're not going to be enough to close the gap to Red Bull. And I was thinking about this just uh, a little bit uh, before the break, because I think that you raised one really, really good point about uh, Lewis Hamilton, because not only has he been an exceptional consistent driver and he's been fast and he's won so many races over the past uh what 25 years it feels like I mean, it feels like lewis has been around and winning races uh, forever but the other thing that he's had is an exceptionally good car an exceptionally good engine and the car has been virtually bulletproof it's been so reliable and that's the one thing i think ultimately that what red bull is going to need because you did hint at that just a, a little while ago you you didn't hint at it you out and out said it is that that they you feel that you've got the um, this almost a premonition that they're going to hit reliability problems at, at some point and let's let's not forget that this has to be a real concern for them because max had what six dnfs last year so it's it's one thing i think for for lewis to maybe be a little bit i don't want to say pessimistic but maybe a little bit more 
maybe he's tempered his expectations as to how much the upgrades on the car are really going to try and close the gap to 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 Red Bull because I have to admit that I'm not 100% convinced either in the reliability of the Red Bull and if that does turn out to be an issue for them then that's where Mercedes could potentially make up some ground in the championship, both in the drivers and constructors. Yeah, I agree. We were talking about this a little bit earlier tonight in the Spaces chat. And one of the things that has a lot of Twitter buzzing right now is the fact that there's kind of been this contradictory information coming out of Mercedes about whether or not they are developing upgrades for this year's car and where the focus is. And I know you and I spoke about it a little bit a little uh, a little while ago, but I think Toto had made some comments recently that there was nothing new in development. And then James Allison, I guess who's soon to assume a, an elevated role within that team, I think he's going to be the chief technical officer soon, or actually it probably happened about a week ago because I think he was due to take over that role on July 1st. Uh, he'd commented that there were things in the pipeline. And I think the discrepancy was that the team's not planning to start anything new from scratch, but that they had some upgrades in the pipeline. So there's a couple of things that they were already yeah. working on. And what James Allison had hinted at is there's something from an arrows perspective. So we know that there's something from an arrow perspective, and we don't necessarily know what that is. We're probably going to find out more details in the coming week. But he also hinted that there's something from a power unit perspective. And that's interesting because with the current formula, the engine formula, power unit formula frozen, it's not like they can technically bring upgrades to the track that are specifically engineered to produce more horsepower. But when we mm-hmm. were in the spaces chat earlier tonight, one of our listeners who has a great, great Twitter following and a fantastic Twitter feed, Bryson, he spoke to the fact that it's very difficult to introduce any new components to the power unit that don't inadvertently produce more power. And the point being from the F1's perspective that, hey, you know what, you can't develop any changes or upgrades to the power unit that are engineered to create more horsepower. However, you might Mm -hmm. do that within the internal combustion engine. But his point, and this is a really good one, how can you introduce a component that's designed to improve reliability that doesn't simultaneously improve performance, whether it's from a a lubrication perspective or any other kind of element? So it sounds as though there's going to be an upgrade for the power unit, again, designed for reliability, maybe has the downstream knock-on effect of helping to produce more power or more consistently produce power in the vein and in the guise of reliability. And then we should probably also see an aero upgrade. But to get back to your other point about Red Bull, obviously, and we talked about this, I think Max had five DNFs last year. Most of those were reliability issues. Mm-hmm. Again, this car's at a whole different world of uh, reliability this year, but I just, I can't see a Red Bull And this isn't a shot at the Milton Keynes team or their factory or their engineers. I just, I can't see a car that's running at the absolute pinnacle of the sport and extracting that much, uh, that much efficiency out of that power unit, not having a failure somewhere. And again, these teams are only allowed three power units a season. They're running so much power through that unit that, that the fuel map that they're running, they're stressing it to to I think degrees that Honda probably never expected two or three years ago when that marriage happened. I just, I can't see them making it through the season without a DNF. And that might be because of a driver error. That might be because of a collision that be, could be because of a gearbox or a power unit failure. But I think there's still an opportunity for Mercedes. And I think you make a really great point, which is one of the things that's made Mercedes so successful over the last seven years is their enormous their enormous consistency. And again, we saw some 
we saw some incidents at Germany in 2019. Obviously, that event didn't play out the way we hoped it would have for them and the Netflix audience. Of course, last year was heartbreak and back brain <laughs> with, with George Russell. But ultimately, they have been the pinnacle of consistency in this sport. And if we can see some more of that this year and we can see a DNF or two out of Red Bull, then that blows the championship wide open. If Lewis goes into a race race weekend and wins a race and max DNFs, all of a sudden the championship's wide open again. It takes one weekend. And again, we're only 40% of the way through the calendar. So there's still tons to race for and tons left. And I just think it would be foolish for fans or Mercedes to give up on this championship this early. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, if you go back over the last uh, number of years, the amount of DNFs that Mercedes have had to, because of a mechanical or reliability issues have been very few. I mean, Malaysia 2016, or sorry, yeah, 2016, when Lewis's That's big end big gave That's up. And that, that was the big one because that ultimately decided the championship. And then there was that double DNF that they had in Austria in, what was it, 2018 or 2019, which I think it was, what, what was it? Uh, what was it, hydraulics yeah. or something yeah. like that? It was something something like that, and then a rest of the a lot of the DNFs were self inflicted, like the turn three incident between Rosberg and Hamilton in Spain, or the Spa incident, which uh, on the opening lap when when Rosberg uh, put his end plate uh, into uh, Lewis's uh, rear tire, and Lewis had the puncture, and he ended up at the back of the field uh, before the end of the lap, and so I mean a lot of their 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 issues were actually self-inflicted uh, by by the drivers in that so nasty true. situation that they they had but yeah i mean ultimately i mean what when it comes down to winning a championship you have to win obviously a lot of races and score a lot of points and the only way that you're going to do that is keep your car on the track for the entire race to score the, the, the maximum amount of points uh, as, as possible to win either a driver's or, or you know, and or constructors to a championship. And I, I, I don't want to give them the kiss of death or really talk badly about them, but they certainly seem to be so far eight or nine races through the, the 2021 season that Red Bull seems to be in a better place. They, they seem to really remind me of Red Bull from about 10 years ago when they were really dominating the sport with this in, in the Sebastian Vettel era and that uh, that consecutive four championship run that uh, that that Sebastian had and and, and everything like that and it, it really I, I think it really was illustrated to me I think just going back a couple of races to Baku and Azerbaijan that I really had the feeling then that I I, I think we've we might have talked about it either, you know, texting back and forth, or maybe we talked about it on the podcast. And I, I felt that there'd been almost like this switch between Red Bull and Mercedes because it, it seemed like they they they'd literally switch cars and just put their own paint on the other one because it's like a complete role reversal, right? Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm just you, you you make a great point talking about that previous era of Red Bull dominance. I'm just looking back. 2013, obviously the last year Red Bull won a, a driver's title. Sebastian Vettel ran away with the championship. I think he ran off seven, eight victories to close off that season in dominating fashion. They they beat Mercedes by 115 points, but Sebastian Vettel won DNF. It looks like his teammate Weber two DNFs. Yeah, that period of 2011 less so 2010, but 11, 12, 13 reliability was definitely, definitely one of their strengths. But even then, you know, you look at those years, there were still a couple of DNFs. I think on average during that four year run, Vettel DNF 1.5 to two times per season. 2013 was an exception. He was extraordinarily stable that year with the single DNF, but I, mm -hmm. I still suspect there's going to be one. It, it's very, very rare that 
any driver gets through a calendar. And then I think the other consideration too is this potentially is a 23 race calendar. We're not talking about a 17, 18, 19 race calendar. Great and point. if you look back yep. to that V8 era, those teams had eight power units. Again, a very different formula with far less complexity, but it's also astounding that a less, a less complex engine was offered up to them eight times per season. And now we've got this incredibly, incredibly complex formula over a 23 race calendar. So I think my point is there's going to be DNFs and I think the championship could still be wide open. Yeah, I mean, to bring it back to the argument or the, the the point that you made at the top of the show when we were talking about driver penalty points and the fact that at some point that this might cause drivers to sit out to, due to suspension, that when you're on the, 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 the track for 23 races, 23 weekends out of the year, I mean, there, it's just the uh, I guess the, the the law of averages at some point something's going to catch up to you either you're going to get into a situation like uh, say Lando Norris and and Sergio Perez did that ended up uh, with them getting penalized and penalty points and all that but also the fact that you're just putting all those extra miles on the car the wear and tear that the, the fact that just because you have you've been out and you've uh, put so many miles on the car you just can't throw a new engine in the back just because the way that uh, you know that uh, that the parts and and allocations are, are given for the for the for the power units and the cost cap and everything like that is you just can't go and arbitrarily change parts and upgrade things at the drop of the hat because the the sport just does not allow for it so at some point th- despite how good that these cars are designed and built and all the quality control that goes into it just the fact that you're putting all this stress and all this wear and tear on it that that Ultimately, sadly, things break and they sometimes break at very inopportune moments. I mean, ask Lewis, uh, Malaysia 2016, that in, you know, maybe at any other year, that was just a one, you know, one incident that doesn't mean anything, but that year cost him a championship. Absolutely. That's one of those moments in F1 where it's almost a, where were you when that happened? Because it was such a tight championship. And with the exception of this year, and I get 2014 was tight, but it kind of loosened up at the end when you had that double points finish in the season finale. But aside from this year, that was really the only season that had a real sense of suspense. And to see that happen, and it was funny because I didn't see that race live, but that was probably that's probably the F1 season that I, I've been most invested in ever. 2015 MotoGP season, I was all in. 2016 F1 season, I was obsessed with. But we weren't watching the races live because we had other responsibilities on the Sunday mornings. So we would watch them in the afternoon. We'd record them. But I saw a photo pop up in my social media feed, and it was a picture of the back of Lewis's car with the fire coming out of the back of it. And I knew it was mm. Lewis. I knew it was a DNF, and I knew the title was potentially over. And to be fair to Lewis in 2016, he fought back like crazy in the back half of that season but Nico had just built up such a huge dominating lead by running off four race wins to start that season it was always going to be difficult but Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know where we I don't know where we started (laughs) <laughs> well, we might not know where we started. I mean, I, I think that goes back to the comment uh, that somebody sent us last week is that sometimes we get off to, <laughs> get off topic and we never go back to where, where we started from. But we were just uh, talking about uh, the, the fact that uh, Lewis is not overly confident in the fact that uh, these planned upgrades for Mercedes coming next weekend at Silverstone will really close the gap to Red Bull as much as they uh, the, that, that uh, perhaps they're hoping for. But anyways, just on the flip side of this, let's go 
we'll, we'll walk a, a little bit further up the pit lane to the, the Red Bull garage now. And uh, Max has, has said this week that he thinks that, uh, or he's not thinking, he's uh, flat out said it, that Red Bull has to make sure that their car is not dominant only in places uh, like Austria. And that, that's true. I mean, they come off a couple of very, very impressive uh, weekends at the Red Bull ring, but that's only one track on, like you say, potentially a 23 uh, race season. And let, let's just say at least through the, the first half dozen races of the season, it was a lot more even. I mean, you, you, we started in Bahrain and then we had Imola and, you know, those first four or five races, at least it was, you, you could tell that it was, it was a lot more even and then I think after we got to to Azerbaijan, then the 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 what do you want to call it? I guess the advantage really shifted to Red Bull. Why they you know how they really established that dominance? I'm still not 100 percent convinced or sure in my own mind. But that to be Azerbaijan, at least at this point in the season, really sort of underpins the the, the or becomes the foundation of what's been this impressive run of victories and results for for Red Bull. One of the things I wanted to do was go back and take a look at uh, Red Bull results through this kind of heart. Sorry, some technical issues there. But one of the things that I wanted to try and do is go back and look at some of the Red Bull results through the heart of the F1 season over the past couple of seasons. Because I wanted to get a sense of how Max performs mid-season when you get into, I like to call it the heart or the meat of the calendar when you're talking about Hungary, Great Britain. Uh, You're talking about some of these more traditional tracks like Spa. And then I really came to the conclusion that the car he's driving this year is so different than what he had in 16, 17, 18, 19, that it's probably not even fair to start trying to draw comps and comparisons between this year and anything we've seen prior. And for sure, the chassis that he's driving this year is fundamentally the 2020 chassis. It's an RB16. That's why the car is called the RB16B this year, because it's fundamentally the same thing. And and I, I don't think mm-hmm. people felt it was, uh, I don't think it was, it was earned to give it an entirely new designation. But that said, the the arrow work and the power unit are so fundamentally different and at such a fundamentally different level. I don't think it's reasonable to start drawing those type of comps. But I think he's right in the sense that people may have expected success at Red Bull. This is obviously a track where they've done extremely well in the past. I know... I know this is a track that they own, and I think a lot of people infer because of that that it's somewhere that they should dominate. But I think it's important to remember as well that they're based out of Milton Keynes. Their factory is Milton Keynes. We're talking about a factory that's 30 minutes from Silverstone. So while they may own the Red Bull ring, they their home track is technically Silverstone. And that said, we haven't seen any significant degree of domination there. And obviously we talked about this on the spaces chat earlier tonight that since 2014, Mercedes has won every race except 2018 when Lewis got spun on the first track on the first lap by, Mm -hmm. by Kimmy. And he still managed to chase down seven and take second in that race. But I think he makes an astute observation, which is it's great that they've had this level of domination so far. And there were some unique circumstances and obviously they looked fantastic in Austria and the pace was exceptional. France was good, but obviously it was a little bit closer than, than maybe it looked when you go back and look at the race classification. I I think his points astute in the sense that 
you don't want to read too much into the championship based on two dominating results at the same place with similar conditions and not totally different tire compounds. I think his point's a good one, which is, you know what, we've, we've done some good things. We won at Monaco, which is fantastic. And obviously we won the second race of the season when we were in Italy. France was a close battle. Azerbaijan, we probably would have won. Smoke certainly would have won without that tire issue. But Austria is unique within the context of the calendar. And I think his point is we need to be able to show the same degree of consistency and pace and performance everywhere else. And that's not just a matter of showing up for that race weekend. That's a matter of the mechanics and engineers putting together a package that's going to work at every single one of those tracks. And I think we need to be cautious in not not extrapolating too much from this because there's so much that goes into preparing for a race weekend. It's not simply unboxing the car and bolting it together and rolling Max out onto the track for a couple of free practice sessions. It's really about understanding the track, understanding the track conditions, setting up the car correctly. And that's everything from aero, the wing, the camber of the wing, suspension, geometry, all of that kind of stuff. And I think Based on what we've seen so far, I think the assumption is one, Max is just at another level, which he probably is, but that the power unit is carrying the car to to heights we've never seen before. But I just think it's important to continue to recognize that there's far more that goes into a dominant car than simply the power unit and the driver. It's everything else. And that's that's contributions that come from everyone at the factory and in the garage and at mission control and everyone else that contributes to the setup of that car, because you can go into a race weekend and have the best power unit and the best driver. But if your team gets the suspension set up wrong, you're done because if you get the suspension set up wrong, tire degradation might be bad. And then you have to make an unexpected pit stop, or maybe you opt for the wrong wing or you configure the ring incorrectly. And then you've got more drag than expected. And suddenly you're off the pace. Like there's all these kind of additional wrinkles. And I think his point's a good one, which is, Hey, we're looking great. Great, but let's be conservative and let's be cautious and continue to work and put in the same amount of effort that we do to study every track and to prepare for every race weekend. Yeah, hundred percent. Nothing more to add to that. I think uh, you summed it up uh, brilliantly. Okay, let's take a, another quick uh, break. Uh, when we come back here, I do want to just uh, talk about a couple of comments that Christian Horner made this week, just about the the new engine format that's going to come in in a couple of years, and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away, guys. We'll be back in just a few moments. So don't go away. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, uh, just uh, picking up on where we left off just now about uh, Red Bull. Anyway, so this is a bit of a a little bit of an aside, but it was interesting. Christian Horner, the team principal of Red Bull Racing, said that the new engine that's going to debut in 2025 needs to be loud and entertaining for fans or otherwise the teams might as well go and do Formula E. So, you know, that's a bit of an interesting comment. Uh, Christian, obviously not a huge fan of, uh, of Formula E. I'd be kind of, uh, I thought that was a bit of a snide uh, remark. But uh, anyways, uh, Christian had to say, uh, quote, uh, we see that the costs of the current engine are extremely prohibitive. It was not uh, thought of when this engine was conceived. And I think there's a fantastic opportunity for what could arguably be the engine for 10 years when it's introduced introduced to do something a bit different. I think it has to address the emotion, the sounds, and yes, of course, it has to tick the sustainable boxes. But I think it still needs to be entertaining. Otherwise, we should all go and do Formula E. Hopefully, the collective minds can come up and do something attractive for 2025, or what would be more sensible is to do the job properly for 2026, end quote. 
So what do you make of that I love comment? that comment. I think and I, it's kind of like throwing a little bit of shade towards Formula E. And I think Formula yep. E gets a, a little bit of undue hate within the Formula One community for a number of different reasons. And I think you and I need to start investing some time to better understand it since we've got a race coming to our city. But of the people that I know or I've spoken to, and, and I think we had Charlie on the Spaces Chat earlier tonight that attended a Formula E event in Brooklyn a couple of years ago, which is one of the sports uh, flagship events. His point was that yep. they don't sound like a Formula One car, and that's okay because they sound like something entirely different, and it's also really exciting. But I think Christian Horner's point here is that Formula One cars, the lifeblood of the sport, has been these loud, shrill, visceral cars that create a sensation that that climbs up your spine in and into your mm-hmm. brain and into your inner being and that's unique and that's special and that defines formula one and i think sometimes the fear is that if you lose that you lose some of the essence that is formula one and for sure i think that was something that formula one was hugely criticized for in 2014 15 and 16 when they'd initially kind of adopted this V6 turbo hybrid where the cars were very, very muted relative to what they'd been in the past. And there was, there was certainly a bit of turbo wine, which I, I loved the sound of turbo wine, but it wasn't super obvious because you didn't hear spooling turbos because the way the hybrid system works is that the turbos are kind of always spooled and running at peak efficiency in terms of producing mm-hmm. compressed air, et cetera, et cetera. But I get his point, which is, Formula One is known for a specific sound and a specific sensation, and they don't want to lose that. The challenge for Formula One is you have to kind of juggle this visceral noise with the fact that the industry, the automotive industry is moving away from internal combustion engines. And I think what we're going to see in 2026 is probably a bridge between where F1 is now and where it will ultimately go in the future, which is probably closer and closer to full electrification. But I appreciate what they're trying to do here. And it's going to be something that generally resembles the internal combustion engines of today. It's probably going to be a V6. It's going to be a low displacement engine. It's going to have a heavy reliance on a a turbocharger. Uh, Like we talked about last week, uh, probably a really significant a significantly simplified hybrid system that will probably contribute more of the car's overall power and then potentially some sort of synthetic or synthetic fuel. And I think that's cool. Like I think the idea of having mm-hmm. a synthetic fuel that's not designed around something that's drilled out of the ground in the Canadian tar sands or out of the oil fields off the coast of Saudi Arabia, I think that's pretty cool. And I think that's something to get excited about. Yeah, I agree with him. I I want that. I need that. And I'll be honest, when I went to an F1 race in 2016, I'll be totally honest, I was underwhelmed because as fun as the weekend one, as as special it was to be there, it was not remotely what I was expecting, especially because I'd been to a MotoGP race a couple of months before and the sound and the sensation was shocking, like absolutely shocking. It, It felt like every time a bike went by, a train was going through your living room while you were trying to watch CNN or Fox news or something while eating your dinner. It was it was crazy. So hopefully they're able to recapture that. And of course, they've done some work the last couple of years where they kind of recovered some of that noise, but hopefully they can create it in a legitimate, authentic way that isn't artificial. Because I think sometimes you see road car manufacturers creating sounds that are artificial and that if F1 can recover that authentically, that would be pretty cool. 
Yeah, you know, the, the the first race I ever went to was way back in 2001, and it was just insane, oh. especially not not just to watching the cars V10s, like going around maybe. by themselves. Yeah, not, yeah, the V10s, exactly. And it was impressive just the cars going around by themselves, but that opening lap or that opening 10 laps when the... When the, when the field was still relatively compressed, I mean, it was, you know, it was painful because we didn't have the earplugs in because I was oh there with, at the track with the, with the, and you had to, it's like going to an air show and watching the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds or someone like that. And just, you would feel that the sound and the power would like literally resonate through your entire body. And like earplugs were a must. And then we were at Spain in 2014. So five or six races into the turbo hybrid era. And again, it was, I mean, it was cool because I mean, the cars were still obviously super fast. They still perform like formula one cars, but just that sound that uh, that we'd all become accustomed to i mean those of us that uh, that have been watching for for a long time it was it was like you say it was very underwhelming and i i certainly hope in this this new engine format that they come up with for for 2025 or 2026 recaptures some of that hopefully a good majority of that but i i just felt that comment from christian horner was quite humorous because i felt that he was referring to formula e in in a tone of voice that you might you might sort of speak about somebody that shows up to a potluck dinner and brings like a bowl of salad you know so <laughs> something like that that was kind of a it was kind of I a just, humorous i uh, want to touch on that point you made real quick about the 2001 engines i i just brought this up oh, in okay. the background so for for context in 2001 ferrari was rocking let me take a look here they were rocking an 825 horsepower engine that weighed the car weighed 1300 pounds and this is this is where the sound comes from because oftentimes formula 1 will restrict the the highest rpm that the engines can run at the engines that mm-hmm. year the V10 engine that Ferrari was running that year revved to 17 thousand three hundred rpm <laughs> and that sound that visceral noise that you're talking about that deafening sound that comes when that engine hits 12 13 15 16 17 thousand rpm and and remember too this isn't like a street car like those cars are banging off the, at least back then they were banging off the rev limiter with every single gear change just incredible and there is as well there's some really great youtube videos so if you ever want to get a sense of what cars sounded like through different eras go to youtube because there's some folks that have posted videos like inboard um, external videos as well it gives you a sense of what they sounded like in different generations and it'll help give you perspective on why people are so invested in what f1 cars sound like but you're totally right like he was hardcore throwing shade at, at formula e yeah so Christian Horner, obviously not the guy that brings salad to a potluck. Uh, anyways, uh, I just wanted to uh, talk now a little bit about uh, Lando Norris because uh, he reacted to that uh, comment that uh, came over race radio in Austria this uh, last weekend when um, Lewis Hamilton made the comment, uh, Lando, what a great driver. Uh, anyways, uh, Lando said competing against uh, Mercedes and Red Bull is, uh, it, he, he said it made him realize that they're not uh, raceable. And then he also reacted uh, as well to what uh, Lewis uh, had to say, uh, and, and and what do you say in in a, in a 
in, in a situation like that uh, when uh, when Lewis, you know, multiple world champion, probably the best uh, driver of all time, uh, uh, Lando had to say, quote, thanks, I don't know what to say. It was tough. It wasn't easy. Like the whole first stint, I think both Mercs were quicker than me, which was not a surprise, something I was expecting, but I was able to hold them uh, off as well as we did. So it was a bit of a surprise for that long into the race. But it was like that was the first time I've really raced against him, end quote. So, you know, that's, that, that's interesting. And I, again, I mean, what, what else can you really say except uh, take that as a, a pretty, pretty cool compliment uh, again, you know, from, from a guy like Lewis I Hamilton. I don't have a lot to add on this. I just, I think it's nice and it's cute. And I know the British press were eating this one up and F1 Twitter went crazy about this comment. But let's be very honest, that comment would have been very different if it was an overtake or a pass in a more significant moment or if there was contact or if Lando had defended the line a little bit more aggressively. Like, I mm-hmm. think circumstances and context are really important here. And this is a nice cute sure. moment and we're playing it up because we're all in love with Lando right now. And it's nice to see Lewis make a, <laughs> make a, a kind gesturous comment towards him. But I just think that that comment would have been very, very different if the outcome of that moment was a, a little bit different. Sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I just kind of wonder, is this going to be like what, what kicks off a bit of a bromance between Lando and Lewis? Oh, don't think that the <laughs> we'll press doesn't want that. Don't think that F1 oh, yeah. and F1 Reddit don't want that. That's <laughs> what they're all salivating for. Exactly. Yeah, I just want to talk uh, really quickly about something I saw on Twitter today, and this was uh, from the uh, official Formula One um, Twitter account. And they basically worked up a couple of driver cards for Lando and his teammate uh, Danny Ricardo. So the overall rating, for, okay, I'll go. I'll break it down by the four categories: experience, racecraft, awareness, and pace. So for Danny Rick, they gave him an eighty out of one hundred for experience, ninety-four for racecraft. 91 for awareness and pace at 88. Now switch over to Lando. They gave him a 60 for experience, 96 for racecraft, 99 for awareness, and 89 for pace. So for for those of you that uh, have been keeping up and punching this out on the calculator, the final scores on the overall rating, Danny Rick gets a 90. And Lando gets a 91. So I thought that was uh, kind of uh, interesting because I thought that for for Lando, I thought that they were pretty cruel to give him a 60 out of 100 when it comes to experience. And I also thought that uh, for for Ricardo as well, like 80 for experience, I just thought, well, I mean, he's been around for a good number of years now. Like, I, I think that he deserves a little bit more than that. But then I thought it was interesting that uh, that they gave Lando almost like full points. They gave him a 99 out of 100 for awareness. What, what, what do you make of that? I mean, I know that you got to take this with a, a pinch of salt as a bit of a tongue in cheek thing. But I thought I thought it was kind of interesting the way that they kind of rated them. I'd like to see the formula. Share with us your algorithm formula. And I need to know how this is scored oh, I properly. I love this all so much. And what I want to hear is the drivers commenting on this. So I, I think obviously a lot of our listeners are in the United States. And one of the really exciting things every summer is when the NBA 2K ratings come out. So obviously everyone in the NBA ecosystem seems to be a big Fortnite fan. They all play FIFA. They all play NBA 2K. But the players get so worked up about their 2K ratings. And I know for years and years, 
DeMar DeRozan, who's of course close to our hearts because he spent so many years in uh, Toronto, but he would constantly be disrespected on the 2K ratings. But I love that there's now this element to Formula One, and I desperately, desperately want to hear some of the drivers start commenting on it and chirping about where Mm -hmm. where they're positioned. And of course, I, I think I challenged some of the ratings online, and some people were quick to comment on the fact that the ratings are principally based on results last year and in prior years, not so much on this current calendar, which is probably why Daniel Ricardo's numbers look so good. But even if you reflect on to last year's numbers, to me, like when you look at the Mercedes numbers, I felt that Valtteri was far, far, far too close to Hamilton. I think they finished 95 and 92. But I love that we're seeing these new elements introduced to F1, which just create more conversation and create more opportunity for people to talk about formula one. And it does so in a way that appeals to American fans in particular, so they can engage with the sport in a way that's familiar to them and not totally foreign. So I thought this was totally, totally cool. And I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. You know, I've mentioned it before, but I have a friend that works for EA Sports and specifically with the uh, the FIFA franchise. And these players, they take these uh, ratings really serious because every time there there's a new release of uh, FIFA, he would tell me that some, and, and these are like household names for some of these guys. They'd be getting messages from some of these, uh, you know, like elite players, you know, dissatisfied that the way that they were, they were like scored and ranked and what uh, there's some of their different, uh, I guess, uh, some of the different uh, categories where they were ranked in. And, uh, you know, they, they take it really serious. I guess there, there must be some sort of bragging rights uh, amongst the players yeah. and themselves so it's yeah. kind of cool yeah hey uh anyways let, let's take uh, one final break here and then when we come back uh, i think uh, we had a couple of things out of the mailbag that we questions. wanted to address sure okay so let's do that and we'll come back in just a moment and we'll tackle those uh, before we close it down for the night so don't go away guys we'll be right back All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And I feel like that we should have at least uh, some sort of a jingle or something for the mailbag. I don't, but uh, let, let's dive into it. I'll give you a drum roll. How about the drum roll? Here we go. Perfect. That's fantastic. So okay. this question comes from Reed and Reed, and I don't know this because I, I creeped on his social media, but because he was in a spaces chat last night and I learned a lot about Dallas. Reed is from the Dallas Metroplex. We had a great conversation last night, a little bit about life in Texas and a little bit about Formula One. And it's so funny. I was asking him because we're from Vancouver and the most important thing to everyone in Vancouver is housing affordability, housing affordability. And I kind of asked him <laughs> yep. offhand, like, you know what, what does a, what does a, what does, what does it cost to get a house down there? He's like, yeah, two or 300 K. I'm like, Oh, what is that? Like a one, two bedroom condo. And he's like, no, that's a house. <laughs> 300k would get you a one bedroom condo here 20 years ago but anyways that aside reed had 550 square feet or something ridiculous too right (laughs) but reed had an awesome question that he sent to us via twitter a little while ago and i promised we'd hit this one up because i loved it uh hey guys what are your thoughts on porsche and audi possibly joining formula one with the recent power unit talks in austria and considering audi's exit from formula e So fantastic question. And for a little bit of context, uh, I think most of our listeners are aware that the teams are starting to get together to talk about the future of the Formula One power unit, which we talked about a little bit last week. But one of the things that we didn't really get into was that there were some companies in attendance 
or in attendance that aren't currently participating in Formula One. And of course, that always gets people very, very excited. So would love to, and I want to talk about the Formula E piece as well, but would love your thoughts on Porsche, Audi, potentially looking, considering, thinking about flirting with Formula One? I don't know. I think it would be awesome. I mean, look at what uh, Audi has uh, accomplished in motorsport, what they've done at Le Mans, what they've done in Formula E. Now they've, they're they pulling out of Formula E to try and tackle Paris-Dakar with like uh, electric-powered uh, vehicles, which I think is a uh, phenomenal. I mean, Porsche is a, a phenomenal world-known uh, make of cars as well. I mean, uh, they're, they're just, both of them, I think, uh, would be uh, phenomenal if one or both were to uh, enter a, for a Formula One. And it, it is kind of interesting, too, because I was thinking, just going back to the announcement uh, from, I guess, a couple, several months ago now that, uh, that that Audi is going to withdraw from Formula E at the at the end of the year. Because for a while, I mean, it, it seemed that a lot of these manufacturers are almost lining up to join Formula E. So to, to get a big manufacturer like Audi withdraw from the series relatively quickly, I thought was a rather interesting development. And I, I kind of... I was thinking of how does that really sort of relate to what we've seen in in Formula One in in the announcement that we we heard of with uh, with Honda pulling out at the end of the year, and it's it's completely different. I mean, Audi is is leaving so they can concentrate on a different kind of uh, racing. What with it, like I say, Perry Dakar Rally, and Honda they're withdrawing because of the fact that they want to concentrate on the electrification of their their road fleet. So that that that's something completely different. But yeah, I find it really tantalizing. I'd love to see one or both of them in Formula One, and I guess it really kind of makes you wonder are they are they there just because they're interested to see how this is going to go what with the discussions with the new engine formula that's going to come out in 2025 or 2026 are they going to be part of those discussions like be like key stakeholders that if this goes well you know that they will take the plunge and jump into formula 1 so i I'm, I'm really fascinated to what their level of involvement is. Is this just kind of a, a window browsing kind of thing, or is there some deeper intent to their their participation at this, this point? I think this is something that's very, very exciting to talk about. For those of you that don't know, back in early 2019, autosport.com broke a story that Porsche, in anticipation of a possible 2021 entry into the sport, so of course 2021 was supposed to be the year where we had the new design, the new body, the standardization of parts, componentry, etc. And of course, that got bumped to 2022 because of the COVID situation. But it, it's understood, yep. or at least it's been reported, that Porsche had a fully functioning F1 compliant power unit on a test bench. Like that's how far down the development pipeline they'd gotten in terms of exploring a bid <laughs> to join Formula One. And it's not known how much power it was generating. The dimensions of the power unit weren't known, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the time, it was generally understood that it was still a very, very, very costly costly uh, entry into the sport. And I think one of the things that was understood at that point as well is that even from as late as 2017, a lot of people were pushing back on the inclusion of the MGU-H within the power unit, which I think I think we've now learned is probably going to be removed for 2026 and beyond. But yeah, Sounds as like far it, yeah. back as 2019, it was well established that Porsche had been investing money to get a sense of what it would take to get involved with Formula One. Now, I did a little bit of math earlier today because Again, we've talked about this. It costs a fortune for a team to join Formula One. You literally need to build the factory. You need to build a power unit, or you need to create a partnership with a team that's going to supply a power unit. 
this entire process is hundreds of millions of dollars. It's it's not like fifteen million dollars to start a Formula E team. It's hundreds of millions of dollars. And the challenge for Porsche is relative to a lot of the other brands. This is a relatively small manufacturer. They they produce about a quarter million cars a year. Even if their participation in Formula One bumped up their annual sales by ten percent, you're talking about twenty seven thousand new cars at twelve thousand bucks a piece in terms of the gross margin that they earn on these things. It's never going to recover the cost that they have to invest in Formula One. So. To me, I think it's a long shot. Again, you might point to Ferrari and say, well, they sell a lot fewer than 275,000 cars a year. But ultimately, to me, Ferrari's more of a Formula One team that as a side hustle sells road cars. And for Porsche, their side hustle would be the F1 team. And why do that if you're never going to make money off of it? Audi, I think, would be perhaps more compelling simply because they represent a much, much broader group. Obviously, Audi is represented by the Volkswagen Audi group, which is a much bigger company that produces millions of cars a year. And I think the benefits and association could be much broader for that team. I think the challenge, though, is that there's no guarantee of success for any of these teams, right? We saw Toyota join Formula One almost two decades ago, and they invested hundreds Mm -hmm. and hundreds of millions of dollars and had nothing to show for it, nothing. And they eventually left the sport. So I think that's a a cautionary tale for some of these other teams. But I think it's exciting that at least they're trying to get a sense of where the sport's headed. And ultimately, they didn't have to attend, and it cost them nothing to attend, but I'm glad they did. The other comment that Reid had here was about the fact that Audi's exiting Formula E. So Formula E is exciting because as much as they're spec cars and fundamentally the cars are largely identical and they have very tight engine formulas, there are currently, I think, nine different companies producing engines for Formula E, Audi, Mercedes, Penske, Neo, Jaguar, BMW, Porsche, Mahindra, Nissan. Now, the story that broke earlier this year was that both Audi and BMW are leaving Formula E. And initially people were excited because they thought maybe that's an opportunity for them to join Formula One. Audi's leaving and and as far as they're concerned, and this is what they've announced, it's because they want to start focusing on endurance racing again. They want to get back to Daytona. They want to get to Le Mans. Uh, they want to uh, start competing successfully with a hybrid and Dakar. And BMW, and again, people are excited, like, well, if BMW is leaving Formula E, are they looking at making a Formula One return? And they actually issued this statement, which basically puts the nail in the coffin of them ever returning to Formula One. But this was an announcement from BMW and it was, and I quote, when it comes to the development of electronic drivetrains, the BMW group has essentially exhausted the opportunities for this type of technology transfer in the competitive environment of Formula E. So basically what they're saying is they've learned everything they're going to learn about performance electric engines in formula e and they have nothing else to learn and transfer into their their road car division so i think it's doubtful that we'll see mm. bmw but hopefully we'll see uh one of these other teams yeah interesting cool one cool. other question have you got time have we got time for one other question we we okay. do so this one and if you haven't prepared and i think this question required a lot of preparation so i think that's totally cool but uh Texas Tech Sean, one of our listeners who's kind of tweeted at us a couple of times in the past with some really great questions. And I know we touched on this one a little bit before, but I wanted to come back with a a slightly kind of more refined answer. He posted this really great question about the fact that the F1 app allows you to unlock and revisit all of this F1 season since 2007. He's like, rank them. And that's a big ask. But what I did want to do is circle back and rank some of my favorite seasons. So I have my top, I think, six seasons since 2007 here. And again, if you're new to F1 and you're looking to revisit some really exciting seasons, these at least are my favorites. 
My favorite season by far was 2009. That was the Braun Cinderella season, maybe the most magical season in the history yep. of F1. For me, I, I'm really emotionally invested in 2016 because that kind of intertwined my, with my life. I was at the final race, so 2016 was a big one. 2008, because that was the season that Hamilton effectively stole the championship from uh, uh, Felipe Massa in Brazil at his home track. Yeah, he was like, yeah, he was like world champion for what, like 15 totally. seconds or the something Ferrari like that before Lewis. Yeah. the championship. It was unbelievable. 2007, that yeah. was a crazy year. The the entire the entire cheating scandal between McLaren and Ferrari. The fact that there was this massive breakdown at McLaren between Lewis and Alonso and that Kimi snuck in and won a title. And then 2014, because it was the first year of the hybrid era, went down to the wire. And then 2012, for the reason that I talked about earlier, the championship was divide, decided by three points. So Vettel won, but he only won by three points over Fernando Alonso, who was driving for Ferrari that season. And we had like a hundred different race winners. And that was the season where we saw seven different drivers win a race to start the the championship. Yeah, I think those are all really great calls. I actually started going back uh, not so long ago to rewatch the 2009 season on the F1 TV app of the archives, just for that uh, that very reason because it was it was such a great story when Braun GP came in. I mean, they picked up the the, the pieces of what the somewhat failed no, Honda Works failed. team it was. was yeah. yeah. Yeah, they they came in and they had this radical uh, design for this what uh, the the floor this double diffuser or whatever it was, and they really caught everybody uh, by surprise and it was it was wonderful. I mean, it was it was such a cool season to watch. It was great to see Jensen Button win the championship. So I think that's a great call. Uh, Two thousand and eight was another uh, good one. I love the call that you made about uh, twenty sixteen. The way that that one went down to the basically the uh, the, the wire and the way that uh, that Lewis really came back over those last um, you know number of uh, races to to uh, really push uh, Nico Rosberg uh, to the basically to the finish line and I love how in that race you had uh, Max Verstappen and and uh, Sebastian Vettel basically trying to keep these two Mercedes cars at, at, at arm's length to try not to get involved. But, you know, it, it really is interesting because when you look at the that season, of course, Nico, he won the first four races out of the year. And then we get to Spain for the fifth race of the season and Lewis and Nico have a coming together in turn three or turn four on the opening lap. And that was one of those real sort of um, milestone moments of, of that year. But you kind of, one of the impressions when, when I think about 2016 that I think of is, yeah, you know, Nico had that, that huge lead in, in the championship after four or five races, it was 43 points or something like that, but it, it wasn't his, his, um, his championship all the time. It wasn't like he led it from start to finish. He had that wonderful big lead of 43, 44 points or whatever it was. But Lewis started to close the gap afterwards, you know, after Spain in in Monaco and Canada and, and, and races like that. And you get to the middle of the season. By the time that we got to Hungary, Lewis was actually slightly ahead of, of Nico Rosberg. And it wasn't until... Uh, Singapore that uh, that Nico uh, pulled ahead in the championship he was ahead of him by 70 points something like that and then like we were saying earlier in the show it was that moment in Malaysia when his engine blew up on him that really <laughs> really was disastrous because that's what really 
was was that defining moment because at that point Nico had that uh, that that luxury of uh, you know he could sort of just manage his his races there on out that Lewis basically had to win out the rest of the season and Nico only really needed to get seconds or thirds just stay on the podium and just keep his nose out of trouble and then that was going to be the uh, his uh, his path to to, to victory and again uh, 2014 uh, if I didn't mention it that was another that one stands out just because you know I was that was the last season that I went to a race in person so that one stands out for, for for different reasons as well but I, I think there's some great calls and certainly if you're lucky enough to have a subscription to f1 tv and you have access to those archives certainly go back and watch a lot of these old old races and i mean there, there's still lots of races from from previous years as well uh before the mid-2000s i'm not sure how far they go back with the full seasons now but uh, there, there's full races from from almost every year i went back and watched some uh, races last year from the 90s go back and watch uh, another classic race is uh, belgium 1998 where half the field basically got destroyed on the first corner in the wet and then that that's an iconic race to watch uh, i went back and i watched something like the british grand prix from 1986 and that was phenomenal i mean we, we talk about how dominant uh, mercedes is but i believe the driver pairing for williams that year was nelson piquet and uh, nigel mansell and they were lapping cars legit after like 12 or 15 laps. It was absolutely ridiculous. And I think by the time the race was over, I think they basically lapped every car on the grid except for themselves. I mean, it was it was absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, some great calls there. So that, that yeah, was a cool we, question. So we're, I think we'll save this one for next week because I think both you and I probably want to do a little bit of research on this one. But Max, Matt Haxel sure. from Baltimore has a fantastic question about Michael Schumacher. So let's take that one offline and prepare an answer. And then finally, just two other cool. really quick comments. It's, trust me to bring up Haley Bieber on the the podcast, but I was scrolling through my Instagram feed a couple of days ago and there was a picture of Haley Bieber that came up from the complex Instagram post. And I was just like, that's a really mm-hmm. interesting jacket that she's wearing. And it looks super familiar. And I looked a little bit closer and she was wearing a Benetton formula one jacket, like a vintage Benetton. Formula oh, that's one cool. jacket. So I actually tweeted at Benetton. I'm like, was, is she rocking a mm-hmm. vintage jacket or are you getting back into a, the retro formula one game. So I, I'd be very curious to know. And when they actually hit me up via DM, I'll let everybody know. But for those of you that don't know, Benetton, a big Italian, uh, uh, clothing manufacturer that had a big presence and owned a team in formula one, which we could probably talk about forever. And then just another really cute comment that I got a real kick out of, but Andre, one of our listeners based out of Orlando has, he said this a couple of times and I've meant to share it before. Cause I get such a kick out of it, but he refers to what Haas is doing this year as the equivalent of an NBA team, tanking the uh the only, <laughs> the only difference being that there's no nba draft to come and rescue them in terms of uh, an injection of fresh driver <laughs> talent but I, I get such a kick out of that because to see a team intentionally love it. intentionally do poorly by design is uh is very very interesting but that's all i got for you my friend well here here you go get the standing ovation that's All right, enough of that uh, and the audio abrupt. card. But uh, <laughs> well, I am trying to wrap it up uh, nicely. Anyways, well, thank you uh, everybody for first of all uh, for those of you that uh, joined the uh, Spaces ch- Chat uh, before the show tonight. Uh, for all of you that are uh, watching and following along on the live stream on uh, YouTube, and of course, uh, last but certainly not least, uh, all of you that uh, download and listen to the podcast each and every week. Uh, we appreciate all of you and the time that uh, you spend uh, listening to Mark and myself go on and 
on and on, sometimes on point, sometimes usually off on some tangent. So wherever, hopefully somewhere we land in between. But uh, that's it. That is a wrap. Thank you all so very much uh, for downloading and listening to the show this week. Thank you for getting in touch. If you want to get in touch, uh, by all means, uh, do so. The quickest and best way is uh, on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod. And if you want to get in touch, the mailbag, the email has been a little bit empty. And we do have basically a mailbag show coming up on Monday night because there's no race this weekend. So if you want to get in touch, by all means, do so. And you can hit us up at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.